man has long been fascinated with what may lie beneath the ground. In fact, one could argue that nearly the entirety of our world has been created or powered by what was found underground. Many places throughout the world are crisscrossed with mines and tunnels created by those hoping to find the treasure within, whether something practical such as coal or precious minerals, or something a little bit more esoteric. Finding remnants of previous treasures being hidden, for example. Delving this deep is not without risk, however. If you dig too deeply, too greedily, there are consequences. Much like the dwarves of Moria in Lord of the Rings, sometimes what you find underneath may be the end of you. Thousands of miners and delvers of all types have met their end in pursuit of whatever may lie underneath. However, the wealth that lies in a cave structure outside of Springfield, Missouri is of another type altogether. It is a hoard of unusual size, but what could possibly be held inside such a structure that is well known enough that is being told on this podcast, but guarded well enough that it still remains there? What sort of treasure lies underneath the ground? Not gold, silver, or precious jewels, but cheese. Millions of pounds of cheese. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is what? Explain. On the surface, so to speak, a cave may be an unusual place to store cheese, which tends to be legendary for going bad rather rapidly if exacting conditions are not met. I've thrown out far too many half-blocks of cheddar cheese to take people storing dairy products underground at face value. But the more I looked into it, the more this turns out to be a fairly regular occurrence. The use of caves to make cheese has been done for centuries, which does make sense in times before refrigeration. But even now, in the times of walk-in fridges and freezers, industrial kitchens and food processing plants, some of the most highly sought-after cheeses in the world were not only stored, but made in caves. In fact, caves have some of the absolute perfect conditions for changing milk into cheese, or properly aging cheese without something going truly awful. They tend to have very consistent temperatures between 45 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit, as they're far away from the temperature-changing influence of the sun. It's warm enough that the molds and bacteria needed to turn the milk into cheese can go about their business, but cold enough that they'll move at a slower pace that could be controlled by the cheesemaker, rather than simply running rampant. Caves also tend to be very humid places, which is ideal for storing and aging cheese, as if you end up trying to store cheese in a less humid place, it tends to just become a dense brick. Potentially good for making a house with, but not very good for eating. But many cheesemakers, after they've added the bacteria and rennet, which are enzymes often harvested from the forced stomach of ruminant animals such as cows and goat, and have treated the curds and whey remnants in the way that they would need to in order to create their cheese of choice. Minor spoilers, making blue cheese is a lot stabbier than I expected. They need to have a constant temperature and environment. Rather than going towards the likes of a carefully climate-controlled room in a laboratory, or a food production facility somewhere, Many cheesemakers are going back to the roots of using caves, or even making their own caves to do so. According to many of these master cheesemakers, aging the cheese in these caves or cave-like environments imbues the cheese with a certain terroir, or sense of place. 
These cheeses tend to have bigger, more complex flavors than their non-cave-stored brethren, and often will pick up the aromas and the bacteria of their host caves as well. Again, I truly cannot emphasize enough that I would have made a terrible cheesemaker, because putting something in an area that it picks up more bacteria may be a bridge too far for me. But I do love eating cheese, so I suppose these master cheesemakers know what they're doing. But generally speaking, these artisanal cheese preparations are in the tens or hundreds of pounds worth of dairy products. What exactly causes millions of pounds of cheese to be underground in one place? Well, it did start off with one entity, which is often responsible for a lot of the incredibly weird stuff found underground in North America. The United States government. Okay, unlike many of the other things that I have gone into on this podcast that the U.S. government allegedly has done, this one did come from something of a place of good intentions. The first thing you need to know is that back in the earlier parts of the 20th century, the price of milk used to swing around a lot. You had farmers pretty much trying to give it away during the spring calving season, when cows had a lot of milk to, in theory, give to their calves, but in practice was often just milk to put into glass bottles. On the other hand, you had a lot of demand for milk in the fall, when kids started going back to school and or helping out with the harvesting, and they needed the energy and calcium that milk provided. But there was a much smaller supply of milk in the fall, and so the price rose, often to a price that some people in the United States wouldn't be able to afford on a regular basis. With that sort of price seesaw, the U.S. government tried to step in and somewhat calm the market. But storing milk produced in the spring for sale in the fall was something of a non-starter. Why, you ask? Okay, you go buy a carton of milk in April and don't open it until September. See what happens. Now, once you've scrubbed your fridge clean from the moldy dairy explosion, you'll probably realize the issue. So, the government decided to make lemonade with the lemons they were given. Or rather, they just decided to make cheese, which coincidentally you do need acid to do. Perhaps lemons are relevant here after all. In 1949, the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, introduced the Dairy Product Price Support Program, later on known as the Milk Price Support Program. Basically, if the price of milk sunk below a certain level, the government would step in and buy up all the excess milk at a stable, previously agreed-upon price that would give the farmers some level of profit. The government would then take the extra milk and start turning it into aggressively large amounts of cheese or milk powder for storage purposes. Because, as previously stated, and may be experimented on by you listeners, storing milk for six months as is would cause problems. Then, once the price of milk or dairy products went above 125% of the price that they bought the excess milk for, they would open up the stocks and start selling it in bulk to consumers at a much lower price than they would have had without the government intervention. This worked, as many plans involving millions of pounds of dairy do, right up until it didn't. Dairy farmers were making some money by this process, but the extent of the profits they could make were predetermined by the price at which the government released all the stocks of dairy products that they had bought from the farmers earlier. Sure, they didn't have stock generally going to waste, but there were no enormous bumper years either. Additionally, many Americans as a principle are quite uncomfortable with large-scale government market intervention, 
especially if it starts being seen as wasteful spending of taxpayer money. So the USDA tried to pivot. First, they tried buying a smaller amount of cheese overall, but that didn't solve the problem of the profit capping. Then they tried removing the automatic selling triggers, where instead of the government selling off what it had when prices hit 125% of what they bought it for, the choice of when the dairy stores would be open was left up to the Secretary of Agriculture. This turned into something of a political football, as one man was basically left in charge of a decision that food markets based themselves off of. There was an additional problem of that if the secretary decided to hold on to the stocks beyond the 125% increase point, there was a possibility that some of the dairy products would start to spoil, and U.S. government gives out spoiled milk products was not a headline that anyone at the USDA wanted. At a certain point, the USDA basically decided that they had enough of being a price arbitrator and ended the milk price support program in 2014. However, they still kept storing millions of pounds of cheese and milk products. So, where does one find room to store that inordinately large amount of dairy? Missouri, of course. Missouri has many nicknames, including the Show Me State, the Ozark State, the Bullion State, and the Lead State, among others. The important nickname for our story, however, is the Cave State. Missouri has over 6,000 caves, both naturally forming and artificially created from the prodigious amount of mining and rock quarrying occurring in the state. But once these natural caves were found, or the mines that created these artificial caves were played out, what would people end up doing with them? For a small portion of people, the answer was storage and food preparation. In the early 1800s, German immigrants arrived in St. Louis, Missouri and made rapid use of the caves that crisscrossed underneath the city to help age their beer in a cooler and more controlled environment than above ground could afford them. One of those immigrants was named Adolphus Busch, who would eventually become one of the co-founders of Anheuser-Busch, one of America's largest brewing companies. All that is to say that there was a significant partnership between people using caves in whatever way, shape, or form that they could, and people building said caves. Nowhere is that quite as apparent as in the cave complex known as Springfield Underground. The complex started as the Joseph J. Griesmer Limestone Quarry in 1946, and eight years later they started working exclusively underground to reduce the amount of dust and noise in the surrounding area as limestone quarrying is notoriously dusty and loud. By 1960, enough limestone had been mined that there was approximately 250,000 square feet of additional space in their mine that was not being used to get limestone out of. So, they had the brilliant idea to simply lease out that space as warehouse and storage and continue their quarrying along the other side. There were already roads and rail laid in place for the company to get limestone out of the underground quarry, so infrastructure for heavy storage was already in place. But to do that, they partnered up with a real estate investment company to build the first warehouse and brought in a third company to manage the warehouses in the future. Over the next half century, the three groups worked in harmony. When there was enough limestone removed to create a new warehouse, one was built and the company expanded their warehouse capacity as a result. 
Mining in the quarry ceased in 2015, but millions of square feet of warehouse space were created as a result of decades of quarrying. So, the USDA ended up storing millions of pounds of cheese in Springfield for the relatively affordable cave storage, but also that it's as centrally located as one can be in the United States, while still being in a city, as well as near a bunch of transportation corridors, both by road and by rail. If you wanted to store a bunch of dairy products in one place and then be able to ship them off as rapidly as possible to a wide variety of locations, Springfield does seem to be the place. The thing nowadays is that while the USDA still does hold over a billion pounds of cheese and other foods in cold storage, it doesn't own all of it. In fact, they only own about 20% of it outright. The rest is owned by private companies, but is just stored by the USDA. The USDA still keeps this dairy drop-off to help with food scarcity and food distribution programs. In May of 2020, the USDA created food boxes to distribute to families that were suffering under the tightened economy as a result of COVID-19. Springfield Underground is still open to this day, and their official client list is a secret. But according to their CEO, they mostly work with food companies such as Kraft and Pepsi, and most of their warehouse space is refrigerated as a result. It just costs less to refrigerate something in a place that has a consistent ambient temperature rather than having to deal with fluctuations above ground. While it may be possible to get a tour of Springfield Underground in general, if you're wanting to take a look at a Scrooge McDuckian vault of cheese, you're out of luck. Going into any of the specifically reserved parts of the warehouse is strictly forbidden, and you'll absolutely get thrown out. That being said, I wonder if any of the people working in that warehouse are taking a lunch break, pausing while just about to take a bite of a sandwich and thinking to themselves, Man, I could go for another slice of cheese on here. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you in another couple weeks. Theme music and audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch and script editing by Sarah Smith, both of whom are slightly saddened that I haven't been able to write any cheese-based expenses off for the podcast. If you want to be up to date on all things podcast-related, why not follow us on Instagram at WhatExplainCast and on our Facebook page as What Explain Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. We do have a shiny new Patreon that has just launched, and if you're wanting to support the show financially, this is an amazing way to do so. Go to www.patreon.com slash whatexplain to take a look at the many tiers of support and what exactly it gets you. Word of mouth remains an excellent way to tell people about the show, so if you have a friend, family member, or lactose-crazed neighbor that would like the show, please let them know. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you all later.